0: Welcome to the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. In this episode, we explore the medieval past to better understand the present day. My name is Andrew Rivard Hill, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of French at the University of Virginia. I specialize in material culture and medieval books from France. Later in this episode, I will talk with Virginia Reinberg, a professor of history at Boston College, and her specialty is early modern Europe. Today we examine the role of medieval women in book ownership and how that invites reflection on our modern misperception of women in and from the past. As James Baldwin once wrote, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are our history. Imagine a medieval woman, but she is not a nun. Oh, and did I mention she is pregnant. She lives in Paris, on the rue Jean du Bellay a hundred years before the setting of Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris. The late 14th-century atmosphere of what we think of as the city of love stinks of garbage. Tout à la rue, everything into the street. As she walks to church for daily mass, she stops to look out over the Seine River from Pont Saint Louis. In her pocket, she touches a prayer book just recently finished with all the prayers needed for a pious life, but she wanted to add a life of St. Margaret, the patron saint of childbirth, a beautiful resonant image as she tends sheep on a slanted hill, weaving a thread in her hand. Today we are going to talk about the role of women in owning collections of medieval prayers called Books of Hours. Using evidence from French Books of Hours in particular, we will look at how medieval objects can provide insights into modern misperceptions about medieval women. Within the collective context of the family and the home, these personalized prayer books reveal how St. Margaret had become strongly associated with childbirth by the end of the 14th century in France. Books of Hours are collections of medieval prayers produced in Europe that were extremely popular from the 13th to the 16th century. Regional variations such as language helped to distinguish medieval prayer books that originated in different European countries. Prayers in French especially demonstrate the preferences of medieval people within France for written texts that occurred in the spoken language of daily life. In a society where religion was the cornerstone of thought and culture, Books of Hours opened up a whole new way of praying for the laity while simultaneously continuing a monastic practice and a church tradition. The standard contents in Books of Hours ensured that the laity... Could practice prayer outside the monastic and church setting, while the accessory texts gave each book of hours a personalized touch. At the most basic level, books of hours reflected the monastic and liturgical activity of prayer. The hours of the day at which medieval priests, monks, and nuns prayed generally included daybreak, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon. 3 p.m., sunset, and evening. Such a strict regimen did not necessarily apply to ordinary medieval book owners, depending on who they were and what they did on a daily basis. What the Book of Hours permitted book owners to do was to pray with a physical object in addition to praying from memory either at home or at church. It is significant that tactile objects, such as medieval books, contain prayers because they provide us with evidence of a largely oral devotional practice. Due to the rise of the very durable book of hours, we have the ability to study medieval prayer from a modern perspective. The presence of vernacular texts in Books of Hours, which were primarily in Latin, leads us to the life of St. Margaret, a text in French um, often found at the end of, not always, but at the end of uh, Books of Hours. The juxtaposition of these two languages at this time of the end of the 14th century shows that reading practices... We're beginning to reach a wider audience outside of priests and monks and nuns who read primarily in in Latin. The text in French is called Après la Sainte Passion, or After the Holy Passion, and it's written in a specific kind of verse called octosyllabic verse, which is a fancy way of saying basically eight syllables uh, per line. Now it tells the story, Après la Sainte Passion, tells the story of a young maiden named Margaret. Her parents die, leaving her an orphan at a young age. Subsequently, a nurse raises her, and she becomes a shepherdess. And Famously, her beautiful and noble body attracts the advances of a Roman prelate named Alibrius. After refusing his proposal of marriage, she undergoes various torments inside and outside of prison. She then vanquishes a dragon and has a physical altercation with a demon, during which the demon pleads for mercy, and she has her foot on his neck. In the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit appears in the story not to alleviate St. Margaret's suffering, but to inform her that it will continue. As in many stories about saints, the mistreatment and bodily torture of St. Margaret mimic the life and events of the suffering figure of Christ. Eventually, Margaret comes before the executioner who hesitates, building up the dramatic tension of the narration. However, finally, she is beheaded at the hands of Elibris' executioner, at which point the story becomes her prayer, St. Margaret's prayer, on behalf of both women who are pregnant and those who need protection, a general kind of uh, protection. Having discussed background for Books of Hours in Europe and specifically in France, and having talked about the vernacular text, The Life of St. Margaret, um, now I'd like to move on to talk about a specific material object, uh, which is... um, Well, there's one, there's many of these, but the one I would like to focus on today is found in Charlottesville in Special Collections, um at the university of virginia and it's called charlottesville medieval manuscript w Um, just to give us a specific case study of a material object from the late 14th century so this one uh, medieval manuscript w is from around or approximately uh, 1385 In 1982, Gene Slater Trimble wrote a master's thesis on the Stone Book of Hours, more affectionately known as the Stone Baby Hours, because it's so very small, uh, by librarians in the Special Collections, which the University of Virginia acquired in 1938 from the estate of Edward J. Stone. More formally known as Charlottesville Medieval Manuscript W, this manuscript book is an anonymous late 14th century medieval prayer book, 240 folios, um, and it measures one and three-quarter inches by two and a half inches, so very small, um, perhaps portable. It features two hands, Uh, One for the Latin text and the other for Old French, Um, even though Trimble indicates that the scribe most likely hurried in the task of writing the French text because they are less neat and clear than the Latin text, it is hard to say with certainty uh, that this is uh, the case. In fact, I did not notice such a wide discrepancy between the two hands or the two languages throughout the manuscript. Instead, the similarity of the two hands underscores the widespread transition to using Gothic scripts in 14th century France. Trimble identified the script in the prayer book as a Gothic script, which was one of the most widely used scripts in 14th century France. Because of the unrestrained use of gold for embellishment throughout the prayer book, the original owner most likely prized the possession for its monetary value. The inclusion of specific Dominican saints in the calendar suggests that the owner or maker of the prayer book might have been associated with the Dominican Order. For instance, the rubricated names of St. Dominic, uh, July 4th and St. Peter, June 29th and August 1st, appear. On the other hand, St. Francis of Assisi, October 4th, occurs as well, which indicates an association with the Franciscan Order. Other rubricated... Feast days, rubricated, means that the text is in red, in this case, and the rubricated feast days include Saint-Geneviève, January 3rd, and Saint-Denis, October 9th, which very likely suggests that the calendar was intended to be used in Paris, because these saints were strongly associated with the city of Paris in medieval France. One possibility is that a Dominican monastery or convent in Paris owned the book, even though no owner portraits of monastic or laypeople appear in the visual contents to help corroborate this postulation. It is equally possible that a Parisian laywoman owned the book because it contains a life of Saint Margaret, who is closely linked to childbirth. However, the question of how monastic and lay communities used vernacular texts, including the life of St. Margaret, certainly comes to mind. The interactions of lay people with monks and or nuns via books of hours is a line of inquiry that can help us explain fluid boundaries between social classes rather than thinking of them as isolated categories. Now, the visual contents of this book of hours, I'm going to limit it to the image of St. Margaret, which precedes her life. And I referred to it earlier in this episode. She's basically, it's, an, it's a depiction of her as a shepherdess, which is a direct reference to the, to the text itself. She's standing on a hillside with uh, some sheep, and she's holding a thread in her hand. Um, it's a very beautiful, resonant image, some very beautiful blues and, uh, and reds in it. And Saint Margaret in medieval France is not always depicted in this way. There are many images of her where she is depicted bursting from a dragon. To just to give some context as to what kinds of images, what, you know, what what was in the images that depicted Saint Margaret. Um, so there were different different kinds for sure. This particular one, she is a shepherdess, um, and she is weaving from her sheep to demonstrate uh, the context of just how many different kinds of uh, visual images there are of St. Margaret um, from medieval France. There's another manuscript I'm very fond of called Walters 91. Um, It's housed in the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. And the image of St. Margaret, she's bursting out of a dragon, as I just referred to, and there's an unidentified man and woman standing on either side of her. And those people are what is considered uh, an owner portrait. So most likely the person who was involved... Uh, with the making of this manuscript, who was going to eventually own it, uh, wanted a picture of him or herself in the images uh, within the manuscript. Um, And Although unidentified, the clothing of each person speaks volumes. Uh, For example, the woman dons a henin or a headdress in the shape of a cone, which designates nobility or aristocracy. At this time, this makes sense that an aristocratic uh, woman or, and or man would, be, would own a medieval manuscript book. And since the man in the image is wearing red hose and a short gray tunic, it is unlikely that he is a monk. In terms of the social classes associated with books of ours at this time, it makes sense, um, as I said, that an aristocratic laywoman very likely owned this manuscript. And since several of the prayers suggest a female supplicant and the potential owner portrait here include an image of a noble woman, it is very likely that the first owner of this manuscript book uh, was female. Of course, I don't know 100%, but it's likely. Even more significant is the fact that the owner portrait occurs in an accessory text rather than at the start of, for example, The Hours of the Virgin, the quintessential Text of the hours of, of a book of hours, um, and this was very typical in 13th century medieval manuscripts. Above the man and the woman in the decorated letter, a second dragon gives a sense of threat to the scene. Communicating a message of humor and play, the image is at once lively and dynamic, and as the characters interact, including the dragons, an anticipated movement. Uh, suffuses the scene and brings to mind questions about who owned the manuscript and uh, how they used it. The last example of one of the books of ours um, from France that I really enjoy is called Morgan M. 947. It's from circa 1390, end of the 14th century. And it's housed in the Morgan Library, uh, which is in New York City. In um, this one I wanted to talk a little bit more about the provenance or the ownership of the of the book. While we don't know that much about the original owners, we can kind of work our way from the present um, back into the past to see um, how much we can we can learn about the, the manuscript. So the American book collector Sherman Post Haight purchased a French prayer book that contained a vernacular version of the life of Saint Margaret in Paris in 1915. In 1970, he donated it to the Morgan Library, at which point the manuscript became known as Morgan M um, 947. From the late 14th century, Morgan M 947, 75 folios long, and five and a quarter inches by three and three quarters inches, a little bigger than the first one I mentioned from uh, Charlottesville. Now, the Charlottesville one is more complete. Um, However, Morgan M. 947 may be a fragmentary book of hours, according to the curatorial description. It contains none of the quintessential texts of books of hours, such as the calendar, uh, the prayers associated with the Hours of the Virgin, suffrages, litany, or the office of the dead. It does begin with the commonly occurring images of the Hours of the Virgin, the nativity, and the adoration. Moreover, the manuscript contains works often found as accessory texts in Books of Hours, popular prayers such as the Seven Verses of St. Bernard, the Joys of the Virgin, and the Prayer of the Seven Requests, um, as well as what I mentioned before, The Life of St. Margaret. So I, that's why I treat Morgan M947 provisionally as a Book of Hours. However, it would be interesting if it were not a Book of Hours, because that would suggest that the connection between prayer and the life of St. Margaret extends beyond Books of Hours. The difficulty in categorizing this manuscript as a Book of Hours underscores the ambiguity of distinction between Books of Hours and other types of prayer books. Although my main focus is on Books of Hours because of their popularity in medieval culture, more research on the manuscript transmission of the life of St. Margaret does remain to be done. Since we've covered some different images of St. Margaret, I thought I would mention the one in Morgan M947, which is um, a historiated initial, which basically means that there's a, a letter, and inside of this enlarged letter, there are there's a, a, a scene depicted or characters depicted. So the text, Après la Sainte Passion, The Life of St. Margaret, begins with an A. So it has two panels and the top panel is St George and it's rubbed off it's hard to tell that it's St George but based on other images of St Margaret we know it's St George in the top part of the panel on the bottom part St Margaret is kneeling and she's atop a dragon it's hard to tell but it looks like she has actually burst from the dragon the size of these images are quite small because it is it is a letter you know, within the letter there are these characters. But these are three manuscripts uh, that I find very fascinating because they contain this life of Saint Margaret, and it's not always the same image. It just shows the vibrancy of visual culture in the Middle Ages in France. <laughs> My guest today is Virginia Reinberg, professor in the history department at Boston College. Virginia Reinberg teaches courses on early modern European history, the Reformation, early printed books and the readers, protest movements, and witch trials in early modern Europe and early America. Her research centers on social and religious life in early modern Europe. Most recently, she has published a book entitled Storied Places, Pilgrim Shrines, Nature and History in Early Modern France, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. She is also an expert in French books of ours, which is why I invited her today. To jump right into it, Professor Reinberg, do you think it very likely or historically accurate that this anonymous woman is walking through the streets of Paris with a tiny medieval prayer book tucked into her pocket.
1: It's kind of unlikely. I mean, I like the way you set the scene. That is the city Mm -hmm. at a certain time, a woman of a certain class. That's all like spot on. Um, And I thought that was a really great way to start. We're just not sure that people really carried them around. That's that's the thing. I mean, you've seen them, you know.
0: Yeah, they're not as neatly bound as a modern book.
1: I really like the way you set the scene so specifically um, in terms of place and time, because that I think is really the book of hours is a Parisian thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are other places, uh, but it's really a Parisian invention. Um, So I think setting in Paris at that time is a really great idea. Book of Hours really is, I think, the most, probably the most important remain of the Middle Ages that's in the United States. Um, There are many of them in many parts of the world, but many in the United States, many in Canada, other places that are very, very far from their the place of their production.
0: Before we go any further, can you contextualize Books of Hours more generally?
1: It's a family possession, it's an individual possession, it has liturgical texts in it. So one can use it at home to remember, to pray to the saints, for example, to pray for uh, the salvation of the souls of your parents, of your siblings who have uh, predeceased you. You could take it to church, but the important point is that the, the practices that are reflected in the book that are shaped by the book, that are kind of archived in the book, are also ones that you would be participating in in church. So I think it's important to see the Book of Hours between the home and the church that way.
0: Now, for those of us who are not experts in medieval manuscripts, uh, Book of Hours is a small, personalized, but standardized collection of religious images and texts for practicing daily devotion. What else would you add to our definition of books of ours to broaden the cultural scope of our discussion so far?
1: That mm. it reflects every single thing. It reflects literacy. It reflects devotion to the saints. It reflects, reflects the ways that people thought about their ancestors and what their obligations to their ancestors was. Uh, it tells you a little bit of something about almost everything that was mm. part of life in that period.
0: Women played an important role in the ownership of books of ours uh, in the Middle Ages. Can you elaborate about this idea of women reading and using uh, books, um, and even in some cases helping to make make them too, uh, during the Middle Ages?
1: I'm a little bit more skeptical about the women issue. I think it's a family book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's also really plausible that you would start with a woman. I think that's really right. And that you center religion immediately. That's also really uh, appropriate and plausible for the time and place.
0: Oh, that's interesting um, that you bring up the point about um, women. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason I want to do this podcast is to bring attention to stereotypes of women in the middle ages, but what it sounds like, what you're, what you're saying is that, you know, the woman is part of a social network, a family. So it's not only about the, the one, a woman only owning, owning the book of hours, but it's about, you know, it's a, um, a keepsake or, you know, an object that the family, that the family owns. Yeah. And to not lose sight of that.
1: Yeah, that's really right. And I also think it's important to see women in their, uh, collective context to see them in the family, to see them in communities. There's some books of hours that are owned by nuns. We know that, but the numbers are small. So I don't really know what, what we can necessarily make of that. I mean, the thing that, what got set off in my mind by your recording was that one of the things I really tried to do in my book was to show that the book of hours makes a link between the home and church. Hmm. And I really thought that somehow the way you topographically, Sketched that out, made that point extremely well.
0: So, in your extensive research on French prayer books or French books of hours, are there any one or two that have struck you in terms of female ownership of medieval books? And that can be in terms of images that struck you or, or text or really, really anything. But I know that in books of hours, the images are what immediately draw modern people into them to start asking questions about these objects.
1: Uh, There are a few. Uh, The ones that come to mind as really compelling examples of women's ownership are the books that seem to be passed down from mother to daughter, or in some cases, grandmother to granddaughter, uh, in some cases, sister to sister. I didn't find a lot of those.
0: That sounds fascinating. Now, I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on this idea of uh, family um, ownership of uh, Books of Hours.
1: We have a genealogy of names in there that shows that this book was owned by families, but they're also portraits of women that are not your stock portraits. Uh, in other words, they show women in, uh, in mass, for example, at the mass, or in prayer before an image, and they're not stock images that you could just go to an illuminator or a shop in Paris in 1450 and buy one of these things and kind of have it lightly customized with your name in it. These are uh, books that seem to have been made for a particular owner, a particular patron. Um, So there are a couple of chains of ownership Mm. uh, that are displayed in a few books that really do come to mind.
0: Now, I wanted to explain a little bit more about um, A Life of St. Margaret. Now, it basically means that um, a story promoting religious values um, using the character of St. Margaret, a female saint, appeared in the manuscript book or in many manuscript books at this time. And I argue in my dissertation that it is very likely that uh, a woman owned a book of hours if it contained a life, a narrative, a religious narrative about St. Margaret because of the close association with pregnancy and childbirth. Dozens of these lives of St. Margaret remain fairly neglected, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm doing my dissertation research. at the beginning of my podcast, the anonymous woman is carrying a French prayer book with a life of St. Margaret. I'm wondering, Professor Reinberg, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about her.
1: Margaret is one of those saints that we're not sure actually existed. Uh, There are many, both male and female saints that we don't know if they really existed because the paper trail, the textual trail only goes back so far. Margaret is one of those she uh, was supposedly an early Christian martyr. The stories recorded about her life and her miracles were recorded many centuries after these miracles and her life happened. So it's very problematic to try to say Margaret was a certain person. Who she was to people in the 15th and 16th centuries is another question though. She was, uh, after the Virgin Mary, I would say, um, probably the most important saint for uh, as an object of prayer and uh, appeals, um, especially for women, because she was associated with childbirth, uh, with pregnancy and childbirth, and with all other manner of questions having to do with fertility, motherhood, mothering, um, et cetera. So she's a kind of all-purpose, I would say, mothering, Uh, uh, patron saint in the 15th and 16th centuries. That's who she is uh, to the women who cared about her and prayed to her in the 15th and 16th centuries.
0: What misperceptions about medieval women do not hold up when discussing ownership of French books of ours in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries?
1: So misperceptions, I would say, are, first of all, that women were illiterate. Women were literate in this period, not in numbers as high as men's literacy, but women were literate. They were especially likely to be literate in families in which the men were literate. So we know that women were writers in this period, not often enough recognized. And that's one of the things that I love about Sarah McNamara's book, too, is that she shows women at the creation of texts and the transmission of texts um, in a very profound way, I think. So I think we often, my students, for example, or people that have a kind of general knowledge of pre-modern history would say, oh, women were illiterate. They didn't participate in cultural life or intellectual life. No, that's just all nonsense. (laughs) They might not have participated in the same, uh, at the same number of people uh, as men did, but they definitely were present and they were creators too.
0: My final question takes us back to the main reason that I want to do this podcast, which is to understand how um, objects from the past have relevance today.
1: I think it's important to recognize that the past was really diverse and that women were literate too. That women were part of families in which there was a book culture, that women were part of families in which there was a family inheritance of religious practices, that books were a part of, women were readers too. So I think recognizing that women at every level were participating in every activity that men were participating in is extremely important. In this period. So, I would say it's important for us to recognize that there was diversity of experience in the past and that women were part of everything uh, cultural that was going on, religious that was going on in this period. So, that's one thing I think is extremely important. I think it's also important to, I don't know if I have the, the right language for this, but I've been thinking about this women have an intellectual history as well as men do. We don't have as many textual sources about what that intellectual history is. In other words, the way that they uh, generated ideas about the way the world worked, about what religion should be. We don't have as much access to um, texts on paper or texts printed that we can definitively associate with women. So it's not as common to think about women as being generators of ideas or creators of practices, but I think it needs to be recognized that they were part of that world too. And any scrap of information that we can use from a prayer book or uh, a library inventory or family correspondence that gives us any access into the way women Created intellectual and religious life, we need to use that. So that's what I would say that um, uh, those of us who are concerned about, worried about working toward diversity in our world and gender equality in our world should recognize that that also was a struggle in the past and that there were people trying to make the past a better world too. Mm-hmm.
0: French books of ours are medieval objects that have endured from the time period of their production all the way to the present day, and they offer insights into religious practices, reading habits, the daily life of women, um, as well as misperceptions about medieval women. Although these misperceptions have persisted through the ages, I hope I have initiated further discussion on these timely topics. My name is Andrew Rivard-Hill. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia, and I have been your host today on this episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages. Thanks for listening. Information on Sarah McNamara's book entitled *Effective Meditation* and the invention of medieval compassion, Virginia Reinberg's book entitled *French Books of Hours*, making an archive of prayer 1400 to 1600, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012, and specific French books of hours referred to in this episode. Please see the show notes. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell.